0: Cultured meat is animal tissue, so it is not a meat alternative, it is meat, if we think about meat as cells that come from an animal. So rather than raising and slaughtering an animal for this meat, the process changes. And so that is, we initially take some cells, a collection of cells from an animal, and we don't have to even ever go back to the animal again. We now have those cells, and now we can grow those cells outside of the animal.
1: Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you are hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport, and let's go on a journey together. Every week, when I'm interviewing all the wonderful guests I get to meet for this podcast. I'm surrounded by my animals. In fact, we love animals at the show. I think we actually have 22 legs between all of us. I personally have two wire fox terriers, Bella Luna and Dolce Rosé at my feet. <coughs> and behind me is my rescued red slider turtle named Lucky Lady. My producers don't love it when Bella barks and ruins a tank <coughs> or when Lucky Lady is scratching the walls of her tank, but having them near me helps me keep centered and focused. They've become an important part of my workday, especially during the pandemic. So it's because of my love for these and all animals that I was so excited to meet my guest today. Shannon Faulkner is the co-founder and CEO of Because Animals, a startup that produces cultured meat products for pets. Their goal is to reduce the pet food industry's reliance on animal agriculture. what exactly is cultured meat? Because animals makes pet food from meat products that are grown in a lab from just a few animal cells. Shannon is a PhD. She's a scientist with a background in microbiology and biochemistry. But until she launched her company, she had never been an entrepreneur or even worked professionally for a business of any kind. She's also a vegetarian and a passionate cat rescuer. She realized even though she herself didn't eat animal products, it was nearly impossible to find commercial pet food that offered her own animals that same option. So she set out to make one on her own and because animals was born and it couldn't have come at a better time. The American Pet Products Association says sales topped $100 billion in 2020 and an all time high, smack in the middle of the pandemic. And almost all of that pet food is sourced largely from other animals. Meanwhile, the market for meat alternatives is expected to hit $140 billion in the next 10 years, which would account for about 10% of the global meat industry. Shannon was recently named one of the 40 social entrepreneurs to watch in 2022 by CauseArtist, artist. And for good reason, she is disrupting an industry that has been badly in need of disruption. I was actually blown away when I saw how big the pet food sales are currently, particularly in COVID. It says we just hit 100 billion in pet food sales. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a huge, big
0: global pet food. Yeah. And in the U.S., I mean, in 2020, in the U.S. alone, Americans spent $42 billion feeding their cats and dogs. It's a huge industry, yeah. Both plant-based and cultured meat are certainly on the ri- on the rise. I mean, I think the writing is on the wall, especially in the last couple of years with the weather patterns that we've been seeing. I think previously, climate change, it's sort of fallen on deaf ears. And, and now that people are actually understanding what some of the consequences are, it's beginning to ring home a little bit more loudly that we need to do something. And animal agriculture is the main driver of, of climate change. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So let's start a little bit on your background. I believe that you're from Canada, is that correct?
0: Yeah. I'm originally from Canada. That's where I did my PhD and my master's. And then I moved to California to do my, my postdoc at Stanford. And actually I'm a I'm a biochemist by training mostly in that I've worked with microbes, not tissue, animal tissue, but microbes. And I was doing microbiome research actually while I was at Stanford, but I'm quite well-versed in sort of scientific language. And it was really when I was there that I decided that I wanted to dedicate my My scientific training to taking animals out of the supply chain. I stopped eating meat when I was in my early teens. Uh, I started volunteering with animal rescue in my late teens. I grew up with three dogs, three cats. They were my siblings. So animals have been a huge part of my life forever. I just had these sort of two parallel lives, one being as a scientific researcher, sort of the scientific career, and then volunteering on the side with, with animal stuff And I didn't really see any opportunity for those worlds to collide because most of animal welfare work, it's all volunteer based And so how could one actually develop them? But yeah, when I was at Stanford, actually it was was a really great time in the alternative protein space. It was just, it was shortly after around the same time that Memphis Meats, which is now Upside Foods, they had recently come out of IndieBio, the IndieBio program in San Francisco, as well as... Clara Foods, and so these are folks who are Clara Foods is making basically egg protein without without chickens. And this means, of course, making meat without the animal. And so these are companies that were dedicated to taking animals out of the supply chain, and they were using science to do it. And that's when I really thought, yeah, this is this is exactly what I
1: want to be doing. Excellent. So let's go back to Canada. What part of Canada are you specifically from? I'm from Toronto. Okay, great. And what was it like growing up in Toronto as a kid? You grew up with, you said you had a lot of animals. Were you out on the farm? Were you in the city?
0: Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto. So just a suburban home, three dogs, three cats. It was maybe a lot of animals for a suburban home, but nonetheless, we were
1: animal lovers. And what did your parents do?
0: My parents were elementary school teachers.
1: And you talk a lot about becoming a vegetarian as a teen, what types of things were you eating as a kid prior to making that decision?
0: I was a competitive swimmer from a young age until my teens. And so even as a kid, I was a bit of like a health. I was a weird kid in the sense that I for probably many reasons, but I was a bit of a health nut. So I didn't want to eat chips or, or a chocolate. And so I eat them now, but not as a kid. And so I was always very focused on yeah, the raw vegetables and fruit and so on. But my decision to become vegetarian was really, it was not so much about the health piece, much more about my best friends were animals. And so it wasn't, at a young age, I immediately saw what is the difference between my dog and my cat that I love so much and, and the cow in the pasture or the, the pig. So that was the reason I stopped yeah. eating meat. And I, I didn't actually really receive any pushback from my friends at lunchtime or whatever. I just, no, I don't want to eat meat. And that was that yeah, nobody really got bent out of shape about it. It wasn't a big deal.
1: I used to get in trouble because I would put it in my napkin oh. and try to hide it because I didn't want to eat it either. Just <laughs> So it's like, Ugh.
0: Yeah. I think probably my dad, my dad was a phenomenal cook, but he was, he was a very meat heavy kind of guy. And so he cooked a lot of meat. So I did end up eating more than I wanted to because he was, he was the cook and this is he would get upset when i wouldn't but if he passed away when i was 16 and so i didn't eat very much meat at all it's sort of between okay 13 14 15 and then and then definitely when he when he passed away at 16 then it was okay that's
1: it done um, and at that point were you beginning to do your animal rescue as well or when did the animal rescue come to fruition
0: oh i started volunteering in my late teens so it was well it was well before University, but yeah, still I was a teen, and so I didn't have a license. So my mom would drive me, to drive me to and fro. It wasn't very, very regular. So I suppose it was actually yeah during my master's that I took in my first foster cat, at the Annex Cat from the Annex Cat Rescue in Toronto. So she was my first, my first foster cat, and then I, I continued. I, I was the adoption coordinator with the Annex Cat Rescue for probably eight years or so, and then during my PhD became the feral cat coordinator, and then the board that has the chair of the board for a year.
1: So you leave beautiful Canada and you come to Stanford, which is literally a, it was an institution, but it's an experience of its own, right? An amazing opportunity. What was your vision at that point when you were coming to Stanford? Had you already visualized this food 3.0, so to speak, Or what was your intent in coming to Stanford and how did that change?
0: So my intention was going to Stanford. Well, first of all, to have this incredible opportunity was really quite phenomenal for me. And so it was really initially I just saw it as an opportunity to do more research in the area that I really really was passionate and really loved which is mostly sort of microbial research and microbiome is is a whole other fascinating field. So mostly my motivation was really just to continue to just dig deeper in research. Really still volunteering aside I had always intended on continuing to do animal rescue stuff but at that point there was still no marriage between my animal rescue pursuits and my scientific career or scientific, my day-to-day scientific work. It wasn't until probably about a year and a half in, as I was thinking increasingly about, yeah, next steps. And the sad reality of being a biomedical researcher is that even if you don't do animal work yourself, the work that you do will, if it's translated, if it's translatable research, it often will touch an animal. And so I started to become increasingly uncomfortable with this. And I had some more exposure to groups that were doing animal work.
1: So basically you're saying animal testing. Is, is that research. what you're referring yeah. to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. okay, yeah.
0: So I was able to do animal rescue work and then and scientific work. But as it became clear to me, and I, I was not able to sort of keep these these barriers uh, or these blinders up that yeah, in reality, biomedical research really does involve an animal at, at some point along the line before it actually gets to if, you know, if you're talking about human health. And I didn't want to be a part of it. And as I had more conversations with various people, I realized, in a way, what an outsider I was, and how my, my perspective was not shared by many of my colleagues. And yeah, I, I was sort of disgusted, to be honest, of the sort of the indifference that a lot of people had, just in terms of being able to 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 do work on animals and to think that it was just a, it, that was okay, and it was made clear to me in a conversation that you know if this is the this is the type of work that happens and and I'm going to be yeah I, I will see it from time to time and if this is something that I can't live with then this is not something then I should leave and I agreed I just yeah you're right so I'm on the wrong side of the line in terms of how I'm applying my scientific all of my <laughs> decades of scientific training. I don't want to be a part of keeping animals in the supply chain. I mean, I'm not eating meat for, for animal welfare reasons, and I'm not going to remain involved in academic studies that also, even as sort of a, a bystander that supports animal-based research. So that's when I decided that I was leaving. Is
1: this literally the birth of Because Animals then? Maybe you didn't have the name in your head, but was this literally the pivot yeah it was
0: I mean the, that one incident, which was like two weeks of sort of this emotional suffering that and i was I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with this position that I was now in in terms of I, I can't live with myself in this in this way anymore, and so yeah, that is really what sparked this company. I would say
1: mm-hmm. I want to talk about your co-founder in, in a minute, but i want to I want you to explain to us what is actually meant by cultured meat so cultured
0: meat is animal tissue. So it is not a meat alternative. It is meat. If we think about meat as cells that come from an animal. So it is meat cells that come from an animal that are grown, they're propagated outside of the animal. So rather than raising and slaughtering an animal for this meat, the process changes. And so that is, we initially take some cells, a collection of cells from an animal and we don't have to even ever go back to the animal again. We now have those cells. And now we can grow those cells outside of the animal. And specifically what I mean by that is we grow them in a vessel that is called a bioreactor. We feed those cells inputs of vitamins, minerals, amino acids, the same things that those cells would be consuming inside of an animal. We feed them to those cells outside of the animal in the bioreactor. And uh, the bioreactor is just place where, you know, there's controlled gas exchange and and temperature, which, again, is the same as inside the animal. So we're basically mimicking, for all intents and purposes, we're mimicking the environment inside of an animal, outside of an animal, and we're growing that
1: meat there. So fascinating. And you have some really famous mice that you have as part of this that I think there's three. Can you tell us a little bit about like why you chose mice and how that evolved?
0: Yes. So, we chose mouse because mouse is the ancestral diet of the cat. So, as a cultured meat company that's focused on pet food, we chose to grow a protein source that is most evolutionarily appropriate for cats. So, of course, yeah, in the wild, cats eat mice, small birds, and insects. Chicken and beef are the main ingredients in commercial pet food, but those are also the main allergens for our cats and dogs. The only reason why chicken, beef, seafood are included and are used in a commercial pet food is because those are the leftover products from the human food supply chain. And I would like to talk about that at some point a little bit more later, because that is a really, really important area to discuss. But but, uh, coming back to the point at hand, so we chose mouse. And for us, we started with mice that would have otherwise been used for research purposes. So we we adopted them basically from this place that would have used them for research purposes. And we took a sample of tissue from some cells from their ears. And those mice then went to live with actually one of our, our, our stem cell scientists. She built a really plush mouse house in her house. <laughs> and so the mice, it was two, three levels. So the mice yeah, they were able to just live out there. I think of the three, one of them, one of them passed away a few months ago, but that mouse was at that point, two years old, um, which is, which is very, it's very old for mice. And the other two that are still alive, yeah, they're quite geriatric, but they're, they're, they're doing well. So they were able to live out the rest of their mousey lives in the in a mouse house. And yeah, we were able to use that tissue to grow meat.
1: They literally, I mean, these, these mice have a legacy now, right? They've become very purposeful. So, in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of. Um, I mean, I personally like soy and 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 any any things that's a substitute. I, it doesn't need to taste like chicken. I don't get that part. Like, why is it a substitute? Why is it supposed to taste like chicken? But things like Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger are these cultured. I mean, is the cultured meat that you're creating is is you know, is that going to translate into our diet, the human diet, eventually?
0: So Impossible Foods, Beyond Burger, those are plant-based products. So they are considered meat alternatives because they, they may be excellent protein sources, but they don't have the genetic material of an animal. So cultured meat and those plant-based companies, yeah, they're, they are different things. So there are companies that are definitely focused on, many, many companies actually, that are focused on cultured meat for humans. And in fact, the majority of companies that exist right now, they are all focused on making cultured meat for humans because animals is, a, is rather unique. We're at the moment still the only ones focused on making cultured meat specifically for cats and dogs. But the industry by and large is focused on creating cultured meat, whether it's the actual muscle cells or fat cells. Interested in creating this product for humans to consume.
1: Interesting. So let's talk about the bad stuff. I have two Wire Fox Terriers. I've had in my in my life many dogs. I see you have a turtle behind you. I do have a pet turtle. I rescued her. She was the size of a silver dollar. She was in a toy box. And she is now the size of a pineapple. And I think I finally found her a real sanctuary that she can go to a colony of turtles. But I've been protecting her. I mean, turtles represent home and and safety. And so, you know, I have a lot of empathy towards my turtle for that reason. I want to give her a safe place. Maybe one of the the weirdest things about me, I have a pet turtle. And I think of her as my joke is, hello, kitty had a pet. Her name was Charming Kitty. So my dogs literally will come into my office and watch the turtle swim. And I said, that's their pet.
0: Mm-hmm. I lived with a turtle for a little while. I'm a very big fan of turtles.
1: Well, so I know particularly the things I feed my dog and it's so important. So I have terriers and they have a tendency for allergies, but I've never f- fed them chicken or any animal byproduct of foods. In fact, I've actually made things from scratch that if like I can eat it, then they can eat it, right? So let's talk about the counterculture of cultured meat. What is the industry been and why does the industry need to change to a cultured meat position? So
0: pet food... Is primarily made with something called uh, 4D meat, otherwise animals known as animals that are dead, diseased, dying, and disabled. So these are referred to. The industry doesn't like that term, obviously. So they refer to them instead as fallen animals. But these fallen animals are animals that die during transit due to dehydration, suffocation, disease. So when and when an animal is not slaughtered for meat, an animal dies before they make it to slaughter, that animal or that carcass cannot be sold for human consumption. So, and that's that comprises a large percentage of animals. So those fallen animals combined with the 50% of an animal that humans don't want to eat, which would include things like the head or the viscera, various organs, all of this, this 50% of the animal combined with these fallen animals are then sent to come something called a rendering facility, where basically at this point, it's very, very heavily contaminated meat because these are carcasses that have just sort of been, there's some horrible images on the internet, I'm sure, but basically piled on top of one another, right? And so they're decomposing. And so these these carcasses are sent to something called a rendering facility. And all of this tissue is then subjected to really, really high heats and pressures in order to sterilize the meat so in most cases the listeria salmonella the e coli in most instances it will be killed as a result of this very very intense sterilization process but the other thing that this sterilization process does is it also because it is so intense is it also it compromises a lot of the nutritional value that would otherwise be found in meat which is why when you pick up a bag of dog food or cat food in addition to just seeing chicken or rice or whatever you'll see a long list of other vitamins and minerals that are there and that's because these vitamins and minerals that would have naturally been found in meat in an animal in the wild they're by and by and large lost during this rendering process so those nutrients then have to be added back in synthetic form and sometimes when these nutrients are added back in synthetic form the manufacturers don't always get it right. So you can have excess of certain nutrients and vitamin D in particular is one that you might commonly see recalls for. So you'll see foods that the FDA has issued recalls on for vitamin D because they are at toxic levels, for instance. The FDA has also issued recalls on pet food for due to contamination of something called pentobarbital. Now, pentobarbital is a euthanizing agent. It's, a euthanizing agent. So it is not used to euthanize cattle or pork or chickens, any animals that a human is going to eat. A euthanizing agent is not used to kill those animals, obviously, because then that euthanizing agent does the same thing to humans. So it's toxic or could be lethal at certain doses. So somehow at certain junctures, pentobarbital has gotten into this pet food supply chain through entering these rendering facilities. Those carcasses, it's not coming from a chicken. It's not coming from a cow. It's not coming from a pig. So the rendering facility also homogenizes or blends together all other other animals that would be euthanized with a euthanizing agent like pentobarbital. Speculation is, I think for a while, people were saying dogs and cats from shelters. That's never been proven, but dogs and cats in shelters or anywhere, certainly they are euthanized with pentobarbital or horses. And so... Anyway, the point is that those animals that have been euthanized with this toxic, lethal compound, those carcasses have ended up in rendering facilities, and it has had consequences on the animals, of course, that have consumed that meat. So I'd say that the problem with pet food as we know it, in terms of the problems that current pet food poses to our animals, for the most part, pet food is safe, for the most part. But... Because we do run into this issue with sort of over-supplementation, sometimes under-supplementation, not getting it right because of the intense process of rendering. This can be an issue, as you mentioned, contamination by, which would otherwise usually be fecal microbes. Those are also, they've been found to contaminate the meat as well, as well as sometimes chemicals like pentobarbital. So those are all reasons why, why the FDA might issue a recall on certain types of pet food. And those are all reasons why one should be thoughtful about what they're feeding their pet. But I do want to say that by and large, pet food is usually safe until somebody screws up and gets something wrong. And those are some of the reasons why pet food is recalled.
1: Yeah, when you go into a pet store and you just see these pallets of pallets, pallets of dog and cat food, and you just flip over the package and you read the label. And I don't think a lot of people read the label. I mean, I I'm like, what's the ingredients? And if you can't read anything past the first couple of ingredients, you should really be second guessing that this is good for any consumption. So let's talk about the supply chain needing to change and removing animals and how that we can actually universally become more responsible and healthy with animals in our life.
0: So... I just want to back up and say, interestingly, just around the issue of sustainability, the rendering process, it's actually there's an association. Originally, they were the National Renderers Association, but I guess the NRA acronym didn't say well. So they, they changed it to uh, the North American Renderers Association, so NARA. And they actually promote pet food as a sustainable industry. And they promote it as such because they say, look, in the absence of being able to sell the 50% of the animal that humans don't want to eat and these fallen animals or this 4D meat, just as a to give you a sense, um, in Canada, in the US alone, those carcasses comprise over 25 million tons a year of, of flesh. So it's a lot of carcass. And in the absence of being able to sell all of that meat to the pet food industry, The animal agriculture industry would not only lose profit, right, because now there's a lot of meat that they can't actually sell, but they would have to pay to have it disposed of as biohazardous waste because, remember, it's very, very heavily contaminated. And NARA themselves cite that in four years, all the landfills in the United States would be full of this rotting flesh So, therefore, we need to do something with it, and pet food is a perfect outlet. And so, actually, it supports sustainability. So, I'd say, and initially, when I started this company, other folks did say to me, oh, but you want to take animals out of the supply chain, but is pet food really going to move the needle? Because those are just the byproducts anyway. And as Nara says, it's a sustainable practice. But actually, when you sort of flip it on its head and you say, okay, it's a sustainable practice in the sense that it is sustaining the most unsustainable practice on the earth, which is animal agriculture. And so this is exactly why we're targeting pet food, because if we could not, I mean, in the absence of being able to sort of maintain this status quo, the industry would change.
1: Shannon came up with the idea for a startup that produced cultured meat as an alternative to traditional pet food. But there was one big problem. She knew nothing about how to start a business. She may have been in the Bay Area and working at Stanford, but the startup world was completely foreign to her. In 2016, she was introduced to a fellow Canadian who was studying in the U.S. named Josh Errett. Josh was completing his MBA at Indiana University, but he and Shannon shared some mutual connections, and they even volunteered at the same rescue shelter in Toronto. They bonded over their mutual love of animals, and Josh was even a vegetarian himself. They agreed to come aboard and help her launch because animals, so what about funding? Were you bootstrapped, or did you were living on credit cards, or how did you get funding, and who were your angels?
0: Yeah, so we had a bit of a it was a hard road for us. I actually was able to secure funding quite very, very quickly. And I was able to secure some funding. Yeah, not knowing what I was doing though. So I was happy to accept some initial investment from uh, VCs who said, okay, here's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And to me, this was like it may as well have been a bajillion dollars, like this is how it felt, right? And so I was static and that was actually even before just before Josh had joined. So it was really like really quick that I was able to get this funding and and that was great. So we started the company, but about two years in, and we, we were, of course, you know, Josh and I were really, I wasn't paying myself, he wasn't paying himself, we were sort of living off of our our savings and our spouses, and really just, I mean, I was living in a in like a studio apartment in the Stanford area for a while before we moved to Philadelphia, it really was just a studio, it was, you know, how it goes in the Bay Area, so with my husband, our dog, and in a studio, but it was fine, we are doing the startup thing. And then, so we needed to raise some more money about a year and a half in because $250,000 doesn't get you very far. But we were very frugal and we were able to nonetheless launch our first products with that money, which was a probiotic supplement, one for dogs, one for cats. New teas came out about a a little while later. The first product was actually our sprinkles, the probiotic sprinkles. They weren't called sprinkles at the time. They were just called probiotic, superfood supplement. But yeah, probiotic-based supplement. So we needed to, to raise a second, we needed to raise money, but just before we needed to, to raise more money, we had found out actually just through the media, not even from them, that our investors had also invested in a competitor of ours. And so things got messy as they as they can sometimes in the startup world. Anyway, we decided that we would pay back our investors and then yeah, sort of go in this really take this massive, massive leap uh, of that we were we were just going to do it anyway so yeah paid back the investors and then actually very very quickly soon after got funding from an angel investor who's a real diehard dog lover and from in canada as well as investment from sosb through rebel bio the accelerator program so josh and i both went to london which is where rebel bio was at that time so yeah then we had between sosb's capital and our angels capital at that we had 750,000 so that was great. Still it wasn't a lot of money but certainly it allowed us to keep going.
1: I mean you're challenging a hundred billion dollar industry. So how do you go into a conversation? I would imagine traditional venture capitalists you know could might not know about the industry right at least in the Silicon Valley which is very tech driven. did you receive as much rejection as you were receiving acceptance?
0: I mean, I think as a as a rule, you probably are going to speak to fifty investors, and forty nine are going to say no, and you might get one yes. So that's just the norm, and that was that has continued to be pretty consistent throughout our my fundraising experiences for the now, I guess, almost six years. Yeah, most people say no, so you just have to
1: quickly keep going. But the reverse of no is on, so I would just say just stay always on, right? It's just you got to keep going.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. So as soon as you hear a no, then you just, yeah, you just, okay, that's just, that's behind me and and just, you keep looking forward. So that's what we did. And frankly, it was a pretty awful first two and a half years. Um, It was, I didn't know what I was getting into, right? When I just naively up and quit my academic career. And I mean, I needed to do it. I wanted to do it, but I didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, And good thing I didn't know what I was getting into because I think I would have had a lot more hesitation, but yeah, I had no plan B, which is what, I mean, I think any founder, if you have a plan B, then don't even bother starting really is when you start a startup from nothing, you really have to have like, that's it. There is no plan B and this is going to work no matter what. And so that was really the mentality that we had. And so the first two and a half years were really, really hard, very, very tough. We had a lot of obstacles, but yeah, there was no, there was just no turning back. And so we just had to sort of, we just had to push through all of the hardships that came our way. So it was a slow start for us.
1: Well, not only are you are you creating a business, but you're changing mindset and you're creating a movement, right? So I personally know new cheese because my dog likes the sweet potato. My puppy hasn't had them yet because she's four months old, so I'm still keeping her pretty even more raw organic. But I've tasted them. Yeah, <laughs> they're human green. So yeah. I've admit I ate it. So can you walk us through the actual products, like where you are in delivering that to market?
0: Yeah. So we actually didn't get our lab up and running to actually start the work on cultured meat for, it was really two and a half, three years in before we actually had enough funding that we could could start the lab part. So when we initially started in the early days, we started knowing that, okay, we, we would go in this direction. But in addition, because we are eventually going to be making this product that is is going to totally revolutionize the industry. We believed it then, I believe it now. It's an ingredient that people really don't know. They don't know much about, rightfully so, because it doesn't exist yet. So we're going to really need to do a lot of work in terms of communicating to the consumer what this ingredient is, why it's better for not only the environment and farmed animals, but also their pets. And this is the reason why we actually started to build a brand. In addition to a biotech company. So, we are a food biotechnology company, but we are also a consumer facing brand. And those are classically, like in venture capital, those are two very, very distinct styles of company, right? Most people don't do both at the same time. But we truly believed, and I mean, I, I do believe that the best way to actually to convey and get the messaging out to the consumer as to what this this ingredient is. It really needs to come from us, not another company that we actually sell this ingredient to who then tells the customer what it is, because there's lots of opportunity for them to get it wrong. They're not creating it. They're not the visionaries behind this ingredient, so on and so forth. So we started with building the brand and and we were obsessed because of course myself and Josh being pet parents as well, we're obsessed with pet health. And so we said, let's focus on ingredients, other cultured ingredients that people already know and recognize the health benefits of. So probiotics, they're cultured. Those are bacteria that are grown inside of a bioreactor, fed media that contains all the nutrients they need. Nutritional yeast in the new cheese, that's nutritional yeast is also grown in a bioreactor fed media that gives it all the nutrients they need. And so what we're doing is we're using these other cultured ingredients. So the process is the same. And we're saying to people like, actually, this is how we create cultured meat. The process is the same to other ingredients that have been grown using the same process that you already know is very, very safe and healthy. And we started with a supplement with probiotics. So there's actually only, amazingly, of all the probiotics on the market, you know, there are a lot of probiotics in the market. And I did a lot of research. And there's only one probiotic that actually, that has a significant number of peer-reviewed studies that have proven that. The, the efficacy of that probiotic in terms of actually aiding in immunity and digestive support. Only one of all the probiotics, which is, which is amazing, right? It's crazy to think about that. So that was the probiotic that actually goes into our supplement as
1: well. So when does cultured meat hit the market and where do we find it?
0: Cultured meat, we are working on it in our lab and we're making really, really good progress Mostly what we need to do is it's not really about actually, can we make this product, right? Because we know we can grow cells. People are doing it, people have been doing it for a long time. The hiccup, the reason why it's not yet available is just because it's pretty expensive. So the components to actually feeding those cells outside of an animal, the media components are very expensive. So the thing that animals are incredibly efficient at doing is say for example, if you consider a cow which might eat like uh, grass and consume water, the cow has a lot of genetic machinery to be able to take those inputs, and turn them into other things that cells need to continue to grow. When we don't have an entire cow that can do all of that, we need to provide a lot of those inputs. So, as opposed to precursor compounds that the animal themselves can make, turn those turn into vitamins. We need to actually supply the whole vitamin to the cell. So this is expensive and it's taking us as it is taking, just as it's taking the entire industry some time to actually bring the cost down so that it's commercially viable for us and everybody else to launch cultured meat at a price point that is going to be affordable by customers. I do want to say it's not taking a long time because you know nobody knows if it's going to be safe or something like this. It's tissue. It's, it's, it's meat that otherwise would come from an animal. It's just that the struggle is how do we actually grow it in a way that is cheap enough that it's an affordable proposition for consumers. So we're working on that. Like a lot of other folks are working on, on it. And there will be regulatory approval that has to happen first for us and for everybody else. So we are, we did in 2021, we Actually, sort of soft launched our harmless hunt cultured mouse cookies for cats, but that was sort of a demonstration of the feasibility of of making this product. So we grew our mouse meat, we blended it with other ingredients to actually make that cultured mouse cat cookie. We fed it to cats; they loved it. It's, it was still very expensive for us to do, but nonetheless, we we launched this at something super zoo, which is a which is a really huge trade show in the pet industry uh, this past summer. And now we're focused on scaling. Do you think?
1: You know, there was a race in the last number of years for small independent organic brands to be acquired by the big uh, food industry brands, you know, the Procter & Gamble's and the like, because they're going to give it, be left out. So they had to do acquisition. Do you think that, that the industry ultimately is becoming more open-minded and accepting that it needs to change and that you could be that Pied Piper of change?
0: Yeah, totally. Especially pet food. It is very much an acquisition-based market. If you're familiar with Nom Nom now, which is a a fresh dog food. So they were just purchased by Mars, which is another huge pet food conglomerate, for a billion dollars. So with these big companies like Mars and Purina, that are sort of these stalwarts, they're incredible at running a business, but being agile, nimble, and innovating is not really their thing, right? Which is why they tend to acquire companies that were the innovators. And so, yeah, I mean, certainly the whole world is trending more towards plant-based and cultured meat, understanding that we Whether or not we like it, animal agriculture as it exists, is just can't go on. The the world cannot support it, right? We are a finite earth with more and more people (laughs) that are being bored every year. There's only so much land that will be available to grow the crops to feed the cattle to then feed the people. So whether or not people like it, they realize that things have to change. And the two options, the two really viable options, are plant-based and cultured meat. And especially when we think about our pets, especially our cats, who are these obligate carnivores. Yes, yeah, people are humans are, are are omnivores. They can be omnivores, vegetarians, no problem. Vegetarians and vegans. It's a different story to feed your cat a plant-based diet. It is possible when it's supplemented well, but people don't want to hear it. They, they hear that their cats are carnivores, therefore the cat needs meat, and that's it. So especially for cats and dogs, really cultured meat is the only option for people that want to feed their pets a truly humane and sustainable diet and i think this is this is the reason why pet food has been really this this white space or this this overlooked industry people don't seem to see it as relevant when we're talking about Creating alternatives to actually create a sustainable food supply chain. When actually pet food is is the linchpin. It's critical in sustaining this otherwise unsustainable industry. And pet food is such an industry. It's it's so heavily driven by humanization. Our pets are our dogs are no longer yeah the, the farm dogs that slept outside in the doghouse and ate the scraps. So ensuring that they have a healthy diet, a nutritious diet is is as important as the diet that I feed myself and. I want my food and their food to, at the very least, not have any harm when it comes to, you know, what has gone into actually creating this food. So it's the same conversation, whether it's our dogs and cats or it's us.
1: That was Shannon Faulkner of Because Animals. Shannon says they are still a couple of years away from getting their cultured meat products on shelves and says she expects those products will hit the market in 2024. But while they focus on bringing their production costs down, they already have some products in stores. There's a line of probiotic sprinkles, one for dogs and one for cats. And they offer two types of organic dog cookies or what they call noochies. I've actually bought the pumpkin maple noochies for my dogs and they love them. And when you look at the ingredients, you don't see any animal byproducts. You don't see anything processed. It says right on the package, pumpkin maple syrup, applesauce, nutritional yeast. That's it. No other ingredients. Because animals' mission statement is to create foods and supplements for dogs and cats that cause no harm to animals or the planet. I think that's a pretty great mission statement. They're off to an incredible start and they're already attracting attention from the industry they're trying to disrupt. In 2020, Because Animals won a coveted Purina Award, which the pet food giant awards every year to the most innovative startup in the industry. So now that their competition is taking notice, maybe we should too. I think that's it for the animal actors. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happen on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.